This is an RNZ podcast. A quick warning. This podcast includes allegations of child sexual abuse, so listener discretion is advised. If any of the details are triggering, please talk to someone. If you're in New Zealand, you can call or text 1737 to speak with a trained professional. Now, Karen Zegler's chief been interviewed by Paul Holmes. She said, if parents question their children, we will never get to the truth. This is Peter Ellis talking to me back in something like 2019 about a TV interview with psychiatrist Karen Zellis. That interview aired in March 1992 on New Zealand's biggest nightly current affairs show, Homes. Zellis oversaw the interviews of the children from the civic crash and advised police as they looked into the sex abuse claims against Peter. It's most important that parents don't in fact question their children on the possible events that may have occurred. There is a real risk if they start to try to um, speak with their own children about it, that they might um, introduce ideas uh, to the child and then they may finish up in the position that it will become impossible to know whether or not their child actually has been abused. Now, that should have been it. It's if each and every parent said, no, it was my right to question the children, you say, sorry, that's the end of your child. I can't trust that your child has not been contaminated. That case should have fallen over there, there and then. I mean, there wasn't one parent that didn't say that they had questioned their child. Some parents were just incredible and restrained and professional and went out of the room to, to cry and, and do nothing to prompt it. And this is a woman we're calling Rose, speaking on RNZ's Checkpoint in 2021. Now remember, she's an aunt of one of the children who said they were abused by Peter. Other parents, of course, probably did question their kids more because everyone's going to be different. How, how do you expect, if your kid's sitting there telling you these things, how are you not going to say who was there? As with so much in this case, you're left with two very different views. So when it comes down to the children's evidence, the evidence that's actually at the heart of this case, how do you sort fact from fiction? This is Conviction, a podcast on the civic crash case and the claims of child abuse that led to one of New Zealand's most controversial convictions. In this episode, we're going to look at the children's interviews, what they said, but also how they said it. I'm Ali Jones. And I'm Alexander Beza, and this is episode five, Total Recall. It just became an orgy of, of child abuse. What is a mother supposed to do? Surely to do nothing would be abusive in itself. Peter was a paedophile, and um, I was told that I was a paedophile by association. As Peter said, the children were certainly abused, but it wasn't, they weren't abused by him. I will describe this one thing for you, for your listeners. An aunt of one of the alleged victims is on the phone. It's been incredibly hard for us to get those families to tell their side of the story. They feel the public has turned on them, that Peter Ellis is now seen as a victim rather than the perpetrator that he is to them. But Rose eventually agreed to speak to RNZ's Tim Watkin. So I was in the room at the time. Now this story is not about her nephew, it's about another child she knew. Anyway, this child went rigid. Uh, they were six, they hadn't been at the crash for nearly two and a half years. This child went rigid and then they fainted right in front of us. The adults in the room had been at the Knox Hall meeting that we talked about in the previous episode and these parents were concerned about their child. They fainted, faced out, I was in my lounge. Parents had been warned not to go into detail. 
But Malcolm Cox told author Lindley Hood that parents were invited to go home and cross-examine their children, being careful not to be too specific. They were told to believe their kids, to thank them for telling, and to assure them they'd done the right thing. So the parents in the room took that advice and asked a question. Yeah, this child just went rigid and fainted and quite quickly came to, but when they came, they said, who told and are they dead? Uh, you know, I was in the room for that. It was pretty, it was pretty out there. Uh, the kids don't make, the kids can't do that. You know, that never made it to the media. So, yeah, I ask your listeners to consider that. That's the strength of disclosure parents were getting um, out of the blue. Um, I actually did babysit that child about a year later, and she'd had terrible nightmares. I don't want to go into what she thought, but it was, it, it, it was, um, yeah, it was a striking disclosure, and other families were experiencing the same kind of thing. And you don't think that can be explained by kids and parents sharing stories from the contamination? Absolutely from, not. From parents? That, that, those those kids. That child hadn't seen the other child for a, a couple of years. Uh, there was no interaction. She, they knew who they were because they were connected to me. We, we were each connected to each other. So there was no overlap that could have caused what happened there, the disclosure eyewitness. So let's go back to the end of that summer in 1992 when this child had fainted in Rose's living room when Peter Ellis says parents were unintentionally, unfairly convincing their kids that he was a monster. Public interest in the case is high. The media is all over it, and the police investigation has grown exponentially. And for some, there's a feeling of hysteria in Christchurch. The crash is still open, but some parents have taken their children out. The relationships within the crash parent community are strained. Camps seem to have emerged, those who believe Alice is guilty, and those who don't. The police have been back at it since the start of the year, when seven-year-old Mandy's accusations of yucky touching by Peter prompted more stories of abuse from more crash kids. Official reports will later state that between December 1991 and October 1992, so within 10 months, 118 children were interviewed. Specialists from the Department of Social Welfare led the interviews. Most of the children were aged between five and eight, and sometimes the events they were being questioned about happened months or even years ago, and some were interviewed multiple times. Most of those interviews didn't go anywhere. But a heap did. Before year's end, Peter would be charged with abusing 19 children. Peter Ellis was often called down to the police station to watch videos of those interviews and answer questions. It was all taking its toll, according to Peter's lawyer, Rob Harrison. You know, he was drinking quite heavily at that time, after he'd been suspended, because, you know, uh, uh, there were days when I just... Uh, we're not having a meeting today, Peter. You're not in shape. So, yeah, he was drinking heavily. And it was all taking its toll on the children and their families, too. I was having six or seven nights a week with her waking up screaming in the night and taking maybe a couple of hours to get her to be calm because she was having horrifying nightmares. In 1993 on the TV programme 2020, one mother described her daughter's behaviour after revealing that she'd been abused by Peter. I've watched her um, physically show me quite explicit sexual things. I have heard her describe things in really, in a little girl's language, really just hideous. Like talking about having to bend in half 
and having um, um, people slam things into her into her bottom and it would slap her and it, she'd hit her head on the wall when it was happening. She'd graphically described to me um, about him putting things into her vagina and her anus and um, you know tying her up and putting needles into her and she was crying and she was dry retching when she was telling me and she was uh, she was in bed and she was arching her back and saying he put things in here and here and in the mouth and my eyes and face and um, she was sort of like convulsing and dry retching and then when she sort of calmed down a bit she said to me um, she said Peter really likes hurting me but she really likes hurting me my name is Barry Parsonson. I'm a clinical psychologist. Dr Parsonson is a past president of the New Zealand Psychological Society. He's worked on a number of child sexual abuse cases, both in New Zealand and overseas, so he knows how hard it is for kids to talk about being abused. It's traumatising, it's frightening, distressing for children. They may feel that, um, that they're dirty, or that, that somehow they're at fault. And all of those things added together can make it a pretty horrendous experience for a child. When we look back at all the things said throughout the years about the children's interviews, that's probably the one thing everyone would agree on. It was just horrible for the kids. But was it horrible because they had to recount the abuse they'd suffered? Or was it horrible because they were led to believe things that had never really happened? With no definitive physical or forensic evidence in this case, the glue that binds each camp together are their beliefs, their convictions. With children, especially preschool children, there are all sorts of questions about memory, imagination and, and what's called contamination by adults, where questions and discussions twist or even create memories. For those who believe Peter Ellis's guilt, one phrase has long been central to their view, believe the children. Believe the children mantra, as you call it, is in part a function of the fact that uh, children often weren't believed in the days before people started to take real concern about, about children being sexually abused. And so I think it switched to the other end of the spectrum and saying, well, you've always got to believe the child. The phrase, the mantra, ideology, whatever you want to call it, first surfaced during the McMartin case in the US, and we touched on this case in episode two. The McMartin case came about just as a new understanding of child sexual abuse was emerging. Wake up, America. This is your wake-up call. People don't want to believe that young children have been molested. They'd much prefer to believe that it's not true. We believe the children because once upon a time, we were the children and nobody believed us. Now that was from a 2014 New York Times retrospective on the McMartin case. McMartin was a few years before the civic crash, but it's often seen as a bit of a mirror case with very similar issues and traits. The McMartin trial lasted seven years. In the result, all charges were dropped, no convictions. Back in Christchurch after Peter's arrest, graffiti started to appear on buildings around the city. The phrase, believe the children, scrawled for all to see. It became a major talking point here as journalist Alan Sampson, who reported the case, recalls. That was everywhere. I mean, how do you not believe the child? And it's very hard to argue that. And he's right. I mean, are you going to say the children are making it up on purpose? Or that the parents are? 
that makes no sense. So you're left with the idea that it's all some hideous mistake being unintentionally perpetuated by everyone involved or that the children should be believed. And down through the years, through inquiry after inquiry, over and over again, the children have been believed by their families, of course, but also by experts, judges and police officers too. They've all agreed that Peter Ellis is guilty and the children can be trusted. I've spoken to a police officer who worked on the case who said he'd seen things that convinced him of Ellis's guilt. One thing he said to me was, in his experience, children don't follow up a lie with another lie. This is a part of the case that really stuck with me. As a parent, I know kids lie, and sometimes they are dead certain something happened, even when it didn't. Children at that age are very susceptible to persuasion. Why would you say, my, uh, I, don't, I don't like Peter's black penis? It's a very odd thing to say. Don't question the child. Of course you can, you've got to. Um, kids never fabricate and should be believed regardless of how incredible. It's nonsense. This has been one of the main questions through all of this. How much can you rely on the evidence of such young children? And in some cases, young children remembering back several years. Because the case against Peter Ellis was built completely on what the children said. Not on fingerprints, not on DNA. So this is a good time to bring in Mike Corbalis. He's a professor of psychology at the University of Auckland who studied the Peter Ellis files. Episodic memory, that's memory for particular events, only kicks in around about the age of three or four. Memory before that's pretty hazy anyway, I think. Also, children's testimony is very unreliable. I mean, we feed kids fairy stories and all sorts of magic, so it's pretty hard to get uh, true statements about what happened out of them. And that's true of everybody, by the way. Memory itself, even in adults, is unreliable. So often the question itself can induce the memory. Even simple sort of suggestions like, tell me what happened when the car crashed into the pole. The word crashed gives a much more vivid memory of what happened than if it just sort of gently, uh, it was a gentle accident. So it's all sorts of ways in which language itself can change the structure of a memory. And for all kinds of experiences, that information then gets organised or consolidated in our memory. And then when we go to retrieve it or pull it back out of our memory, it doesn't come out cleanly, perfectly preserved. We actually rebuild it or reconstruct it. Associate Professor Dr Deirdre Brown from Victoria University is a clinical psychologist and practising memory scientist. And so once we've rebuilt it, maybe talked about it or thought about it, it then gets re-encoded. And over time we remember what we remembered last, maybe, rather than what, we, what happened in the first instance. So memory is fluid and always in flux. And that happens for traumatic memories in exactly the same way that it happens for positive or neutral kinds of memories. While Corbalis and Brown are sceptical about the reliability of memories, especially children's memories, there are other schools of thought, including from Professor Gail Goodman, who researched extensively into children's memories and testimony in court. I've seen so many cases over my many years in this field. I've seen everything from true abuse that was not acknowledged to, you know, relatives who physically punish kids until they disclose falsehoods about sexual abuse. She made it clear how incredibly tricky it is to get a handle on the truth in child abuse cases. 
That is one uh, hypothesis. Well, that, that can vary. Uh, well, it, it, it depends. Uh, well, <laughs> yes and no. You get the drift. Goodman is very careful to acknowledge the uncertainty around all this stuff. The research, though, points to the fact that the reliability of memory changes significantly from person to person and from case to case. And age is just one of many factors if you're trying to figure out whether or not a child is telling the truth. In contrast to the New Zealand experts, though, she says there's good evidence that a child's memory can be reliable, especially if they're remembering a traumatic event. You know, we've studied children who have actual abuse allegations, you know, where there's documentation and corroboration. So in real cases uh, where there is video recordings of the actual abuse, for instance, even two-year-olds have broken cases. So they can be um, accurate. Goodman says no one's sure why traumatic memories are so, well, memorable. That is a topic of debate, but, you know, some people feel that our amygdalas, our brains really are adapted to have heightened memory for more traumatic negative events so that you can avoid them in the future, for instance. But hang on, Dr. Brown was just saying that all memory is fluid and imperfect. I mean, Deidre Brown is uh, well known in the United States, but that's kind of the, a party line <laughs> among uh, defense experts. As a, a researcher, it's hard to say that uh, is true or not. If you look at, for instance, uh, some of the adult literature on people who were involved in potential plane crashes, right? So they think the plane is going down and they're all going to die. And you look, you know, say then the plane doesn't go down and everyone is safe. Um, you, that kind of event is memorable. I mean, you can't forget it. Goodman says that stuff sticks for young and old. Where it gets tricky, though, is that if nothing's occurred and there's no traumatic event to remember, then children can be susceptible to suggestions from others. But as she points out, so can adults. And she doesn't buy Corbalis's argument that memory for events doesn't kick in until about the age of three or four. Sometimes adults can't get back to their memories of early childhood. Children, however, can go back, you know, <laughs> into their childhoods more. So say a child is five or six, they might be able to remember things that happened when they were two years old or three years old. Children are no more likely to misremember events than adults are. Goodman is supported by the Australian sexual abuse and trauma expert, Dr. Michael Salter. And a distressed and traumatised child who's disclosing sexual abuse in detail should be taken very seriously. And, you know, one of the things that's changed in the aftermath of cases like Christchurch is the commercialisation of the internet, in which we now have, you know, large communities of child sex offenders talking with one another about their fantasy lives sharing child sexual abuse material very openly on, on the dark web. And it gives us a very direct portal into their inner life that we didn't have in the 80s and the 90s. To him, that evidence from the dark web is more reason to believe the children. It's so complex. Where does it leave us? Can we believe the children or not? I guess we could reasonably say it depends. I mean, there are many cases where children have given false reports and, of course, many cases where children have told the truth. 
Sometimes you can believe the child, and sometimes you can't. So if even academics can't be sure about children's memories, what do we do in this case? Are the children's memories safe, or was the investigation process so flawed that it led to the creation of false memories? Yeah, and that's the key. This is the question of contamination. And to decide whether there was any contamination, we need to look a bit more closely at the process, particularly how the children's testimonies were gathered. Because one of the things that's been debated over and over through the years is whether the well-meaning parents inadvertently implanted memories or whether they made the kids remember things that actually never happened. Parental contamination would be whether intentionally or not children are exposed to information from their parents or expectations from their parents about what what they should say or what they experienced or what their, their memories are likely to be. And so that might happen inadvertently. Now here we're listening to Dr Brown again. A worried parent, for example, might say to their child, look, it's really, really important that you answer the social worker's questions. And so they're not saying what the child should say, but they're you know, communicating it's very important that you answer these questions. And a child might interpret that as... I, I have to give an answer to everything, even if it's not something I know about or even if it's something I can't answer. So it might be as um, unintentional and broad as that. Right through on a continuum to overt coaching, where a parent is saying, OK, now when they ask you about this, this is what you must say. And then somewhere in the middle, there could be all sorts of sources of contamination that might come from, for example, hearing one parent talk to another parent in the lounge. Rose, the aunt of one of the alleged victims, concedes all these scenarios probably played out in the living rooms of Christchurch in 1992. So yes, of course, there will have been every, every variety of reaction and every variety of interaction. It doesn't mean it didn't happen. She compares it to adult rape cases where only about a third of people charged are convicted. It doesn't mean that those other women weren't raped. It's the difficulty of the judicial process for sexual abuse victims, I guess. Yet, as Peter Ellis said right at the beginning of this episode, Karen Zelas, the child psychologist who supervised the specialist interviewers in this case, had already been on national television in late March 92, stressing how important it was that parents didn't question their children. There are specialist interviewers who are being set up to interview these children and it is very important that parents don't conduct their own interrogations. There's a danger, isn't there, that parents can now start imagining changes? Yes, there is. There is a real risk if they start to try to um, speak with their own children about it, that unintentionally, in their effort to get to the truth, that they might um, introduce ideas uh, to the child by the way in which they ask questions of the child and then they may finish up in the position that it will become impossible to know whether or not their child actually has been abused. Now remember, more than 100 children were interviewed, some multiple times over the course of nearly a year. But now we're hearing that just one misphrased question or a comment could change the structure of their memories, could turn something innocent into something far from it. Here's Barry Parsonson again. They were in a situation where as young children, sort of toddlers, um, they needed help with toileting, they needed help with changing soiled garments and, and those sort of things. So, you know, it, it increases the probability that 
um, the behaviours of the caregiver could be misinterpreted. Peter Ellis's lawyer Rob Harrison suggests this might be what happened with at least one of the complaining children. Remember, they all have permanent name suppression, so we're using the pseudonyms given by Lindy Hood for her book. Now this boy Bart said that Peter Ellis wobbled his penis and smacked his bum while he was having a dirty nappy changed. Harrison remembers watching the boys' interviews. There's just the shy little kid, quite an engaging wee child, um, talking about getting changed and getting poop on his penis and his penis being wobbled by someone cleaned it. He's um, not under any pressure, he's quite calm and he's, you know, you think, what a nice kid. And then uh, three months later, uh, after his mother has been hounding the bejesus out of him, night after night after night, and the brothers and the dad and all, everyone else, here's this buddy spaced out little kid turning up with this heap of crap. Um, and you watch him over three nights uh, give statement after statement after statement uh, and you just think, what's happened to this child? Well, we can let Bart's mother answer that question. She actually wrote a book about her experience throughout the investigation. It's called A Mother's Story and was published in 1997. She used different pseudonyms, but we'll stick with Mrs. Dogwood and Bart. We've also had an actor read the words as she wrote them. He was usually one of the last to leave. He always seemed quiet, which I put down to his having had a busy day and feeling tired. Miss Dogwood wasn't initially invited to the 1992 Knoxhall meeting, but found out about it through a friend. She felt confident her son would have told her if anything had happened, but decided to go along anyway. She clearly recalls Karen Zelas's advice. Don't ask leading questions. Wait for your child to comment and then reply with an open-ended question. I don't think now that I analysed all these rights and wrongs about not questioning. We asked him if he had anything to tell us. Bart at first said no. He also said that Peter was his friend. Still, not quite convinced. In fact, still with a gut feeling that there was something more to come out, though I didn't know what, I decided to sound Bart out from time to time. I wanted to know more about his relationship with Peter. And so, about once a week, I would introduce the subject. As time went on, with Bart's answers being always at least non-committal and never raising the slightest alarm in me, I felt more and more reassured and, of course, justified in my actions. This went on for a few weeks, but I was due for a couple of shocks. In May, Bart told his older brother that Peter had smacked his bottom really, really hard. Ms Dogwood called the police and took him in to be interviewed. He told his story but didn't make any other claims. She hoped that was the end of it. But over the next three months, Bart became, in his mother's words, sad, angry, aggressive, violent and abusive. Early in August, he threw a tantrum and kicked a hole in the bathroom wall. Taking a deep breath, I said with unmistakable determination in my voice, Right. We're going to have tea now, but at 7.30 you and Daddy and I are going to sit down and talk about the creche. I believe you've got a lot to tell me and now it's time to talk. I remember it all very clearly. We were close together, Bart lying on the couch in a fetal position, his father sitting on the edge right next to him and me sitting on the floor next to them both. I started asking Bart if he would like to tell us anything he remembered about Peter Ellis and what he had done to him. 
He said that Peter made him do things to him that were yucky, and he didn't want to do it, but Peter made him. I could feel my heart thumping and I felt sick, but I kept listening and tried not to change my facial expression. The three of us were there for more than two and a half hours, and lots of things happened, though not in a sequence that I can recall. It seems strange now to think that Bart didn't cry. In fact, he seemed curiously flat and drained of feelings. But he certainly opened up his memories. Bart was taken in to do an evidential interview the next day. And then in the evening, he disclosed more abuse. And this happened three times in three days. Ms Dogwood says even Detective Colin Ede seemed sceptical when she rang him on the third day. What I had told him had knocked him for six. Perhaps he'd never heard such stories and allegations. His training had not prepared him for anything like that. The mother still believes questioning her son was the right thing to do. It simply gave Bart permission to talk, and he felt safe enough to talk of such horrific abuse, knowing he would be believed and not punished. Bart remembered his abuse very well. He did not forget. He simply gave me the detail when he was ready and when he felt safe to give it. Another of the children, Carrie, and again that's not her real name, was about six when she revealed that Peter had abused her. And she was also no longer at the creche, but had spent three years there. Now let's have a look at this. I've got her mother's official statement from April 1992. In one part... She talks about a conversation she had with her daughter. So the statement reads, I just said to her, do you remember much about the creche? She said, yes. I said, who did you used to like at the creche? And she listed two friends. I said, who did you used to like who used to look after you? She listed basically everybody. She listed Marie, Debbie, Gay and Peter. Then I asked her if there was anyone she didn't like who looked after her. She said, no one. Then I asked her if she liked Peter. She said, no, not really. Then I left it. At that stage, I remember thinking it wouldn't have happened to Carrie because she was so upfront and she would have told me. Sue had talked at the meeting about indicators. Sorry to butt in here, she's actually talking about Sue Saidi. She's the specialist from the Department of Social Welfare and who gave the parents a list of common behaviours that might indicate sexual abuse. Things to look out for, like bad wetting, fussy eating and sexualised behaviour. So then the mother carries on. Carrie showed none of those. It just nagged me. It just stayed in my mind. I wondered if anything had happened. And Carrie's mother is worried, so she asks more questions. She told me that Peter had a cup um, and that he used to put white yucky stuff into the cup and then they had to drink it. This is Carrie's mother being interviewed in 1993 for the TV Current Affairs show 2020. Later on she told me that one of the other children had to suck his penis and then she said that she had to. She talked about um, being hit by him in the toilets of the crash, either inside the toilets with the doors closed or in the lobby part. By continuing to ask Carrie questions, was her mother just giving her the opportunity to open up? Or was she contaminating or even creating those memories? And what about those parents who just talked about the case when their children might overhear? or those who share their worries with other parents, who might then talk to their children. How much is too much? 
The suggestion is that those parents shouldn't talk to each other, shouldn't express concern, shouldn't support one another. I mean, I, I think it puts parents in these cases in an, in an impossible situation. This is Australian criminologist Michael Salter. You know, ultimately, I think this seriously disadvantages these multi-victim child sexual abuse cases. It makes them extremely difficult to investigate and to prosecute because the natural response of a parent in this situation is to check in with their friends whose kids also attend the same institution. He wants people in this sort of situation to talk about abuse, so others are warned. His fear is that the justice system is just too hung up about contamination and that comes at a high price. And that is why most victims and survivors don't make a report to police. It's why many of those reports don't go through to prosecution. It's why conviction rates are so low and appeal rates are so high. Is that the outcome that we want as a society where the majority of people who commit sexual offences against children never face any consequences? And that's the situation that we're in at the moment. So what would you do? How much parental involvement is too much? How much influence is acceptable? It's not like there's a cut and dried answer to that, but in this case, in August 1992, it had reached a level where concerns were raised. Not about all the questioning by parents, by any means, but about some. And surprisingly, those concerns were raised by none other than Karen Zelas, the child psychiatrist who was supervising the social workers interviewing the children. Ross Francis, a legal researcher who studied this case, has seen a letter Zealous wrote to Detective Sergeant John L. It's dated August 28, 1992. It's quite a long letter. It really is almost telling the police how to do their job. And I know that at one point she even says herself that it might sound as though she's telling them how to suck eggs. But I think she's wanting to make sure that they're doing everything that they can do to properly investigate the case. Um, but she does focus on the allegations of two of the uh, children who would later be complainants. Ross is going to stick to the pseudonyms we're using for Kari and Bart. In her letter, Dr. Zelis says that uh, it's clear that Kari's parents elicited disclosures of abuse by Peter Ellis by highly leading questioning. Dr. Zelis says Bart's brother and parents did the same. In Bart's case, the parents subjected him to intensive interrogation pertaining to ritual abuse between the three August interviews, which were on consecutive days. And then she says, Bart would then disclose in the next interview with Sue Saidi the information elicited by his parents the previous night. And she says these facts could make it easy to dismiss the children's statements as having little probative value whether or not they might be accurate. Karen Zellers turned down our request for an interview. Since retiring as a psychiatrist, she became a writer and poet and said she wasn't interested in going back over the case. So we couldn't ask her about the letter. But Peter's lawyer, Rob Harrison, hadn't seen that letter when the case went to trial. I am sure I never saw this letter. I do remember an affidavit that was missing some exhibits. And critically, he didn't know that there were concerns about parental contamination right then and there at the time of the interviews, and by someone very close to the interviewers. How can you be an expert, an impartial witness, having written that letter, and not saying, well, look, we've got real concerns about at least two of these children, and uh, maybe I should reconsider my position. 
For Alice's supporters, parental contamination has always been the crucial thing in this case. But, as we've heard, almost all cases of child abuse will have some contamination because parents are always going to ask questions when told their child might have been abused. And two independent international experts who reviewed the testimony for a later inquiry, the Eichelbaum inquiry, found the evidence the convictions were based on was not undermined by contamination by others. One of those experts was Dr Louise Sass, a Canadian child psychologist. Now, she has some critics, but she was chosen for this inquiry as an international expert on child abuse and child testimony. Her comments on the case are read here by an actor. There is no doubt that there was some contamination of the case by the over-involvement of parents in the investigation and the sharing of information between the complainant parents. This is always a danger in any case, and in particular in a case of this proportion. Having said that, in respect of the evidence of the six child complainants that I was asked to comment on, I did not feel that their evidence was seriously affected and unreliable as a result of the contamination. The effect, in my view, was that there likely would have been more convictions if the issue of contamination by parents had not been raised so frequently. It wasn't just the parents' questioning that raised doubts about the children's evidence. There was something else at play here as their testimonies were pulled together. The interviewers themselves. During the Holmes interview in March 1992, Zilas described what happens in interviews with children. The actual interview process itself is a very gentle one, particularly with young children. It focuses very much on engaging them with play materials. And children will often think of it more as a play session than an interview or an interrogation. Here's a transcript of Suicide interviewing Kari. Lily Hood highlighted it in her book. And it's worth hearing, so I've got a couple of actors reading their words. You said Peter touched your fanny, and I said where? And you said no, he didn't. He only touched you what? He only touched me here. What did he touch you with? I don't know. What? What? His penis. I want to go. Yeah, I know, yeah. Can I please go? Pretty soon. We'll just talk about that one. What did that make you feel like there on your body when his penis... It felt the same. As you can hear, Carrie's showing signs of needing a break. But the interviewer continues. Come and sit down here. I don't want to. Okay. I want to go home. All right. If, would you, um, when his penis touched you there... Were your clothes on or off? On. They were on. And what about his clothes? They were on. They were on too? Yeah, but not his trousers. How did his... I want to go. The session ends after Suicide strikes a deal with Kari. Could you come back another day and tell me the other things if we have a break now? Kari agreed and the interview ended. Ignoring, you know, statements of I'm tired, I want to stop, I want to break, I think is worrisome. Dr Deirdre Brown continues. We also know that a good rapport and a good level of engagement actually protects against the influence of suggestive questions. So when you interview in a warm and supportive manner, not a leading manner, children are more likely to be able to say, no, that's not right, or no, that didn't happen if you do ask questions that are leading, than if you're um, adopting a more authoritarian kind of style of interviewing. So I think if children aren't feeling comfortable they, and then if they're expressing their discomfort and that's being ignored, 
they may feel less able to then disagree or feel like they're going to be heard or believed and so adopt a different kind of responding style. They were interviewed for long periods of time. I think now the rule is you're only supposed to interview a child once. But some of them were interviewed for hours, I believe. So that's really very bad practice. And that's Mike Corbalis, the Auckland University psychology professor. First of all, the child becomes distressed and the child can probably be controlled into saying what the interviewers want them to say, partly to get out of it. I mean, some of those kids, as I understand it, wanted to get away. They wanted to get back to their, their parents. So that makes it even worse in terms of extracting false information. Peter's lawyer Rob Harrison, now remember he watched the videos, said the interviewers ignored other things the children were saying too. One of them was the wee boy who said that Peter had cut his penis off. Uh, and then he'd sellotaped it back on, uh, and he had bled to death. And she said, so, words to the, you know, it was 30 years ago, but she says, so, um, so what happened to the sellotape? And he says, it's still on there. Uh, and she says, um, oh, so how did that make you feel? And he says, uh, it's, a, it's a joke. And she says, um, what do you mean it's a joke? He says, about this, about all this, I'm joking. She says, so how did it make you feel when Peter cut your penis off? And he says, this, this is all a joke. You know that, don't you? He says, she says, so how did you, how did you feel? And the little fellow, God bless him, he reaches up and he grabs her face with both of his hands because she's not looking at him. And he drags her face around so she's looking at him and he says, all this, all this is a joke. You know, I'm, I'm joking about this. Do, do you understand? And she says, so how did it make you feel when Peter put the sellotape on your penis? And the little kid goes, oh. And he just collapsed that. So they had this poor wee kid uh, put through that, uh, and his parents put through that. Uh, and when you looked at the tape, you just felt ashamed. You really did. But I loved that kid. I just thought he was, he was brilliant. That's an extreme example, but the findings of a 2007 study by Professor Harleen Hain suggests the children's interviews often fell well short of best practice. Hain is a memory specialist. And in 2021, I listened to her giving evidence in the Alice case about her study. You'll hear the court typist in the background. Based on our systematic coding of the transcripts of the interviews, the use of suggestive questions was far from zero. On average, children were asked more than 20 suggestive questions about abuse-related matters prior to each allegation. Interviewers employed a wide range of techniques, including the presentation of props, dolls, toys, and drawings that would not represent best practice today. The lack of impartiality was present from the very first interview with each child. Similarly, our analysis of the questions in their first interview indicated that children were asked on average 15.2 abuse-related questions during that initial interview. Based on my reading of the transcripts of the interviews, the questions that were asked and the protocols that were used did not reflect what we know about the best ways in which to elicit the most complete and accurate accounts from children. Importantly, however, given the large amount of additional information that children were exposed to prior to their interviews, including, but not limited to, repeated and highly suggested questioning by their understandably concerned parents, I am not aware of any interview protocol or debriefing procedure 
that would have been effective in ascertaining what did or did not happen. Now, we did manage to talk to a couple of interviewers who worked on this case, but neither were willing to be officially on record. But they defended the way they dealt with the children. One said they weren't stupid. They knew when the kids were exaggerating or heading into flights of fancy. But she pointed out that for every story of a sellotaped penis, there were many more credible claims. And it was those credible claims that made it to court, while the claims of a penis being sellotaped back on were left to the side. I think the interviewers were doing what they believed they had to do for a, a, I mean, assume they thought they were following the best practice they had to for evidence gathering for a successful trial. This is Rose again. I mean, how difficult is it for a woman to get a, a conviction on her own rape where she can have a good memory of it and some evidence and so on like that? They knew how hard it was. Another thing worth remembering is that this was the 1990s and we did things differently back then as Professor Gail Goodman of UC Davis in California recalls. So back in the 1990s, there was still a lot of debate about how to interview children. And um, now you you see more what's called science-based interview protocols. That science-based approach ensures what gets to court these days is more cautiously gathered, more reliable by legal standards. In terms of um, trying to use more non-leading techniques, less use of props. But Goodman says that's not perfect either. For example, in the 1990s... There was a lot of concern that actually abused children would not disclose unless you asked more specific direct questions. And... um, that's, that's still likely true, <laughs> you know. Um, children often do not like to talk about sexual matters. So while more direct questions could lead into a fantasy land, they might also lead to kids telling the truth about things that they didn't actually want to talk about. And today's scientific protocols... They do not necessarily get away from children lying or children making false reports. And um, they're based a lot on uh, concerns about suggestibility so that the uh, science-based protocols are more justifiable in court, I would say. But, you know, you may uh, end up not getting as many um, disclosures as things that actually happen to children if they're more hesitant. Goodman's not saying the interviews were perfect by any means. She agrees they were too long and interviewers should have respected the children's request to stop. But she also says there's up-to-date evidence that repeated interviews can be necessary to build rapport with children and encourage full disclosure. I felt the interviewers, you know, when the children got to the forensic interviews, those interviews were pretty well done, given the standards then. And... uh, But by then, the children already had a lot of uh, influence on them. The day after that interview where she clearly wanted to leave, the little girl Kari was back with Sue Saidi. This interview lasted 40 minutes, and the transcript is 28 pages long. Initially, Kari maintained that both she and Peter had their clothes on when the touching occurred. She was then given an anatomically correct male doll with its trousers up, and Suicide asked, How did the penis touch you if it was in there? When Kari was asked to demonstrate the incident again, she pulled down the doll's pants. There were more questions before Kari finally said, I don't want to end up coming here tomorrow or the next day. The use of anatomically correct dolls has also come under fire in the years since the inquiry. 
Back then in the late 80s, early 90s, the use of dolls with correct genitalia was, was pretty common around the world. The idea was to make it easier for very young children with limited language skills to show rather than tell. But the dolls did more than that. One study we found identified seven functional uses of those dolls, like they could give comfort, could act as an icebreaker, memory stimulus, that sort of thing. Dr Deirdre Brown explains why these dolls are used less often these days. There's recognition that there are probably more risks than rewards associated with them. They're also inherently intriguing, and so children will interact with the various anatomical features of the doll and that can be misinterpreted as communicating experience. We also know for children, you know, particularly around three or four, they have difficulty understanding that the doll is has two identities in this context. On the one hand, it's a doll and a plaything and so you know, play. On the other hand it's meant to be a symbol or a representation of themselves. And that's a very hard concept for them and at around three, four years of age they're unlikely to have mastered that. Larry Parsonson is one of the handful of people I know who actually saw the full recordings of the children's interviews. I called him up. The phone audio isn't great but one of his stories illustrates why toys in general can be problematic. This was um, a child who was actually playing with toys because they were given toys to entertain them while they were interviewed. And he was playing with, with a toy car. And he was asked, what color was uh, Peter's car? And his response was exactly the color of the car he was playing with. Now quickly on that, I'm not aware that Peter had a driver's license, nor that he owned a car. Here's Barry again, on a better line this time. I don't think we can necessarily lay a lot of blame at the feet of the interviewers, they were doing a job that they, as they understood it and I think they didn't realise just what was necessary in order to conduct a, a good interview that gave children an opportunity to say what they needed to say without it being um, sort of interfered with as it were by adults who were doing the interviewing. I keep coming back to the question we asked at the beginning of this episode. How on earth do you sort fact from fiction in these cases? With everything that's said around the children, did it, as Karen Zeeles warned, become impossible to know whether or not Peter Ellis abused these children? Tim Watkin put that to Professor Goodman. Would you have shared that concern at the time? And is that still a concern? Um, yes. And are we getting any better at um, understanding fact from fiction in those kind of situations? Are we getting any better? Uh, I hope so. I hope so. The legal question, the question Alice kept asking for so long is, was the process so flawed that an innocent man was dragged to hell and back? Well, the reality is that over the last three decades, inquiry after inquiry and appeal after appeal ultimately accepted what the children said was true and that the techniques used to draw the information from them passed muster. One judicial panel ruled, and I quote, the interviewer can be seen in some cases following up information received from a parent, but without inappropriate persistence or leading. And another judge said, quote, 
While there may be some legitimate criticism about some aspects of these interviews, I am not satisfied that there has been improper conduct. And a third said, the New Zealand methodology of 1991 for interviewing children in suspected abuse cases was well up with and, in many respects, in advance of the corresponding arrangements discussed in the overseas materials. So the court held that the interviews were fine for three decades. All that changed after Peter's death, but we'll get to that later. And for the families who believe Peter Ellis did prey on a significant number of children in his care, the ins and outs of the interview techniques don't really factor into it. The overall global take on this is that actually the system style and manner is not what's important. It's the consistency of response um, that leads you there. And I think we had that. But again, to your listeners, I'd say it's irrelevant to people like me who've had heard firsthand disclosures how you think these answers were dragged out of children in an interview because we know they weren't um you know it's that simple i'm sorry you can put these questions to me about how they could have been cooked up but you couldn't you couldn't make that happen uh that i that i witnessed that other families witnessed but look the reason there have been so many inquiries and why this case is still so open to debate after 30 years is that there are so many questions and doubts. Most of those questions and doubts come back to the testimony of those small children. And most of those questions and doubts, well, they are still there. Find out that I was having sex with Debbie Gillespie on the toilet floor of the crash, you know. Suddenly, it's not only Peter Ellis in the frame. One child was came through my roof of the um, of my office, which is concrete, in a cage. I had made a little boy called Andrew lie in a white coffin and I had stabbed him and stabbed him until he was dead. In the next episode, we hear some of the children's more bizarre claims and look at where these stories of ovens, cages and dancing circles might have come from. Why would a child come up with such horrific detail in their fantasy world? Thanks for listening to Conviction, the Christchurch Civic Crash Case, hosted by Ellie Jones and Alexander Beezer. Conviction was made by Monsoon Pictures International, with support from RNZ and New Zealand On Air. The series was written and produced with help from Aliki Siantolis, Liz Garten and Tim Watkin. Blair Staple and Rangi Powick were the audio engineers. The voice actors in this episode are Jane Robertson, Nona Peltier, Amy Williams and Perlina Lau. Thanks go out to RNZ's commissioning team, Kay Elmers and Tim Burnell, for giving this project the green light, and to Hing Yi Kong for designing the webpage. And to Nataonga Sound and Vision for help with some of the archival audio, as well as MediaWorks Discovery, Getty Images, TVNZ, and the Livingston Family Trust. The key image for the series is courtesy of North and South. Conviction can be found on the podcast page of the RNZ website. It's also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. Follow the series so you don't miss an episode.